Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. The 14th of April is World Quantum Day, and here on the podcast, the celebrations are starting early. Coming up later this month, we chat with the head of a quantum research center, learn about how quantum technologies can benefit cryptography, and we meet an organizer of World Quantum Day. But this week, we focus on careers in industry for quantum scientists, with a guest who works for an international defense contractor. In the past decade or so, quantum technologies have gone from lab curiosities to commercial products with practical applications. This has led to a growing number of business opportunities in the sector, as well as opportunities for people with the right skills. BAE Systems is developing quantum technologies, and to talk about career opportunities at the defense contractor, I'm joined down the line from New Hampshire by Mackenzie Van Camp, who is Quantum and Photonics Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs, the research and development branch of BAE Systems. Hi, Mackenzie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. So, Mackenzie, can you describe BAE Systems' activities in quantum technology? What, what, what is the company up to? We have a very broad interest in quantum technology. And when I think of quantum technology, I think about it being in three different main areas. There's computing, security, and sensing. Quantum computing, our interest there is in how to leverage quantum computers for defense-relevant problems. There's a lot of really, really computationally challenging problems in defense, as you may imagine, ranging from how do you process lots of information in real time to how do you design things, and even material science. So that's one aspect of it. Quantum security is an obvious area of of interest, um, both implementation of things like quantum safe classical security techniques like post-quantum cryptography and exploring when and where more fully quantum security approaches with actual flying qubits might be warranted and how you could implement it in a practical way. The the third area of quantum technology though, quantum sensing, is the one where we have, have most of our focus right now. We are developing a quantum RF sensing technology called a quantum aperture as part of a DARPA program out of the Microsystems Technology Office. The quantum aperture is based on a cloud of either rubidium or cesium atoms that you can use to sense very, very weak RF signals, regardless of how large the actual sensor is. So this is a huge departure from traditional antennas, where to sense lower frequencies, you typically need a much physically larger antenna. And to sense high frequencies, your antenna is a lot smaller, just based on the wavelength of the RF energy that you're sensing. With quantum apertures, the size of the vapor cell that's holding your atoms is the same, regardless of the wavelength that you're looking at. And you can, in theory, achieve sensitivities down to the thermal noise floor. So this is a hugely interesting technology that we're working to develop as part of this program. And well, those sound really exciting. Some some amazing uh, opportunities there, I'm guessing, for people with the right skills. So what, what sort of people do you need to develop uh, quantum technologies and, and what sort of careers can they expect at BAE Systems? 
we need a huge variety of people and not just traditional quantum physicists. Uh, we need folks with expertise in lasers, photonics, control electronics, algorithm development, mission simulation, mechanical engineering, like the entire breadth of it. As you said, Hamish, the quantum technologies, as they're transitioning from the lab into products, you need a lot of things to actually make something into a fieldable device other than just the quantum technology. So we have really, really diverse teams in terms of technical background. What you would expect at Fast Labs is it's a really creative environment and as I said, it's really, really interdisciplinary teams working on these problems. And the types of research that we do spans everything from fundamental research. We have we have a quantum theorist who's published some great papers recently, all the way through um, developing things for field testing. A lot of the work that we do, particularly in quantum technologies, falls somewhere in the middle between those two. But you get a really great variety of challenges to work on and different levels of the technology development process. And, and from a physics point of view, um, are you looking just for people who, who have a background in, in quantum? You know, maybe somebody who did a PhD on, on quantum technologies, or is, is it much wider than that? Do you cast your net much wider than that? Oh, our, our net is much wider than that. So I personally have a PhD in quantum technologies, but I can give an example on one of my programs where I'm the principal investigator. I'm actually the only person on, on our team that has a PhD in quantum technologies. We have folks with master's degrees in um, communications and signal processing, folks with PhDs in RF engineering, folks with bachelor's degrees in electrical engineering. It's a huge breadth of different skill sets that are needed for that particular program. And I know that, you know, physicists, of course, we're very excited about quantum this and quantum that. But do you find that those those people with the, the signal processing background, for example, are they are they sort of clued in on on the quantum revolution? Do, do, do you have to do you have to sell it to them or um, are they are they looking for do you find that, um, you know, people with those non-physics backgrounds are interested in quantum? I I have found that I, I don't really have to sell it on them. I Quantum is exciting. It captures the imagination. Folks are really eager to be at the forefront of something really, really new and really different from what was done before. I... I also am eager to get to learn from like our signal processing people and our RF engineering people. Like I want to make really clear the the learning goes both ways. The folks who have the more traditional quantum backgrounds need to learn from folks who have more traditional engineering backgrounds in order for us to be able to field these technologies. So it's it's an awesome environment where we're all essentially teaching each other our favorite parts of our fields each day in order to bring these technologies closer to the field. And so, uh, Mackenzie, you, you, you touched briefly on your, um, your, your previous uh, academic uh, work. Before you joined BA Systems in 2017, you did research on photonics and quantum sensing. Why did you make the choice to, uh, to, to go to BA Systems? And how, how has your career progressed since then? 
So during my graduate career, I, I got my master's degree in atomic physics and my PhD uh, was more on the quantum photonics side. But during the process of working my way through graduate school, I actually had the opportunity to work at a couple of companies. I had done a graduate internship at the IBM photonics team in uh, TJ Watson lab. And I also did kind of a co-op for part of my work at the Draper Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I had this really great chance through those programs to be able to see what it's like both working in industry at IBM and working in defense at Draper. And uh, Draper is a, a nonprofit defense organization. So it's a little bit different than places like BAE. But those two experiences uh, really shaped my career plans. And so I decided that I definitely wanted to go into industry and that I had a preference for going into defense. I ended up at BAE through something that sounds, I think, probably horribly old-fashioned at this point. I met folks at an in-person career fair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story. It was the end of, gosh, I think it was like winter of... 2016 or very, very early 2017, I was finishing up my laboratory work for my PhD. So I was at the basement of the Photonic Center in the graduate student offices at Boston University. Log on to my computer at the end of the day before I go hop on the, the train to go home. I see an email from some of our the uh, careers office folks at, at BU that the an IEEE conference that was going on in downtown Boston was having a women in photonics career fair at one of the hotels downtown. And if anyone wanted to swing by, they had about an hour to get there, just print out a copy of your CV. I was like, well, it couldn't hurt. So I I got on the train and I went there and it was, was an interesting event. There were you know, maybe a couple dozen companies in, in attendance. It was fairly small. And a lot of the tables had a male uh, technical person from the company. And a woman was in attendance, but it was often a woman from HR. But there was one table that had, I think it was a half dozen women in attendance. And it was from a company I hadn't really heard of before called BAE Systems. So I went over to talk to them. I thought BAE still stood for British Aerospace Engineering and that they were a UK company that made airplanes. I had no idea at the time that they did such a broader um, kind of swath of work. And those women, they represented folks from early career all the way through director level in technical organizations at BAE. And I had just an amazing conversation with them and learned about Fast Labs and that this could be a really great place for me and that even better, they weren't that far away from where I was living in Boston at the time. So that that relationship turned into uh, an interview. I actually was uh, mentored for my first couple of years at BAE by one of the women I met at that event. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And I, I started out as um, what we call a, a principal scientist. And now, five years later, I'm fortunate enough to have progressed all the way to chief scientist in part because of how quickly these technologies are moving. And so when, 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 you, when you accepted the job and you walked in on your first day, I'm guessing you had a sort of a preconceived notion of how, of how the job would be. Did, did, did it turn out that way? Was it, or was it very different from what you expected and what you had experienced previously in a university lab? So, oh, that's an interesting question. I 
I think in in some ways it was similar to what I expected because I had had that opportunity as a graduate student to work in defense uh, at the Draper Laboratory previously. So I did have some experience there. The part that surprised me the most was how part of the the structure of how the work is done was very, very different from what I was used to in the academic groups that I had been in before. It's typical for a lot of the folks working in R&D and fast labs to be working on multiple different projects. And you can actually have different types of roles on each of those projects. Like within a couple of years, I was at a point where on some projects, I would be the principal investigator or the technical lead. And on other projects, I would be in a much more junior role learning from other people and being able to wear those different hats on a project by project basis and to have teammates that I got to know really well, who sometimes I would be for a project reporting into them, and sometimes it was vice versa. That was a really fantastic environment to help develop not just the technical skills, but also some of the leadership and team management and customer communication skills, all of those other skills that aren't necessarily the ones that you're directly taught in grad school, because you got to kind of trade back and forth between what role you were in. I found it to be a really fantastic environment for developing those skills that you don't necessarily come out of grad school pre-armed with. And and you mentioned that BAE Systems needs a, a, a broad range of people with different skills. What, what are the, the challenges of, of hiring those people? And you know, providing them with a with a great place to work. I mean, it sounds like BA Systems did a a, a fantastic job with you, <laughs> at least um, you know at that jobs fair in Boston. But is it? I'm guessing uh, to to get people to work in the defense sector is probably something that your average person doesn't know about, and they might have some preconceived notions of of what goes on. What what are the challenges of of getting people in to the sector and ensuring that they thrive? I, I think one of the biggest challenges is the same one that I had when I walked into a career fair and I was like, what's BAE doing at a photonics event? I thought they made airplanes. Uh, a lot of people don't know what we work on and they don't know that a lot of the defense contractors have research and development branches. So if folks are looking for a scientific career, it's not necessarily an even an option people are aware of. So that, I think, is probably the single biggest piece of it. Um, some of the projects that we work on, as you would expect, do also have citizenship requirements. Um, we do contract research and development for a number of different customers. And depending on what customer is funding the work, some individual projects may have citizenship requirements. And some roles may require what's called clearance eligibility, meaning that you could, if needed, have a high, uh, high odds of being successfully processed for and granted an appropriate security clearance. Those things are logistically tricky as well, particularly because when, let's say, we or another defense contractor, like any of us in the industry, We'll post a role online and say that it requires clearance eligibility, but we don't always elaborate on what exactly that means. So that leaves folks who are considering coming to the defense industry who don't have a background in it left 
not necessarily knowing what what that would require. And for some of the emerging technologies like quantum and photonics, when we're trying to attract folks who do have those more traditional, like purely quantum or purely photonics backgrounds, most of them would be joining from academia. So they're some of the folks least likely to know what clearance eligibility is and what that means. So that's something that we as a whole industry, I think, have to do a lot better about communicating what exactly would be required so that when folks are looking at these job listings, they know if they're eligible. And McKinsey, diversity is really important for employers, um, you know, in terms of building a, a, a dynamic workforce with lots of different skills. Uh, can you talk a bit about BA Systems Diversity Program for recruitment and career progression? So BA Systems has taken a really active focus in improving the diversity of our recruitment in as it is kind of across the engineering and sciences there's a, a lot of kind of historical lack of diversity right and and BAE systems and I'd say fast labs in particular at least that's the part that I personally see the most has really invested in trying to change that um, there's a program that we've had going on for the last few years called Source, Sponsor, and Promote, where we are taking focused actions to be able to both source people and recruit and hire folks who do not have the traditional, like, you know, white, straight male from certain universities that are nearby and convenient to hire to with certain degrees and types of backgrounds, um, experience. And then once they are at BAE Systems to actually provide sponsorship and support needed to folks and be able to promote them equitably to make sure that we have improved representation across levels of seniority. So it's been really great to be at BAE seeing that program coming to existence. And I feel really fortunate to work at a place that's taking such a leadership role and being deliberate and intentional about improving diversity and not just letting kind of the standards in a lot of um, technology and engineering areas define what's good enough. Well, that's, that's, that's great, Mackenzie. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about your career and uh, sort of the role of, of quantum technologies at BAE Systems. It's really fascinating. Thank you so much. It was great being here. As I mentioned in the introduction, April 14th is World Quantum Day. And here at Physics World, we're joining forces with our journals and ebooks colleagues at IOP Publishing to celebrate all things quantum. The Physics World weekly podcast in April will have quantum themes, and on the website, we'll be highlighting a selection of quantum related feature articles, interviews, and analysis pieces. Our colleagues in journals and ebooks will also be showcasing some of their best quantum content. And related ebooks will be offered at a discount. So don't miss out on the Quantum Day celebrations at IOP Publishing. If you're interested in the economics of quantum technologies, check out James McKenzie's latest transactions column, where he asks when will quantum computers finally break into the market? 
He looks at a range of potential applications for quantum processors and ponders which, if any of these, will become a commercial success. He asserts that while some companies are already selling quantum processors and related services, the direction that the quantum industry will take will only become clear when someone starts selling a scalable, affordable hardware platform with 10,000 quantum bits or more. You can find James's column on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, When Will Quantum Computers Finally Break Into the Market? One thing that quantum computers are expected to do really well is the simulation of chemical reactions, a task that is fiendishly difficult for conventional computers. Also on the website, the science writer and podcaster Dina Genkina looks into a recent study that shows that quantum computers could soon be used to develop chemical reactions that could be used to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Researchers in the US have shown that a variational quantum eigensolver can calculate the properties of the molecules involved in the capture of carbon dioxide using amine molecules. The quantum calculation was simulated using a conventional supercomputer because an appropriate quantum computer is not yet available. Even so, the results mean that when a suitable quantum processor is developed, it could be put to work in the battle against climate change. To read Dina's article, just look for the headline, Carbon Capture Technology Could Benefit from Quantum Computing. The latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast also has a quantum theme. Host Andrew Glester chats with the science writer Philip Ball, who attended a recital of quantum music in London and wrote a feature article about the new genre in Physics World. Andrew also speaks to Maria Menone, who is a composer as well as a theoretical physicist working on quantum information. And of course, Andrew plays some quantum music in that podcast. That episode of the Stories podcast is called Quantum Melodies, the Intersection of Music and Quantum Physics, and you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. And you can also find Philip Ball's article on the website. Just look for the headline, Can We Use Quantum Computers to Make Music? I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Mackenzie Van Camp for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Physics World.